Awesome. Well, it is my privilege to introduce our speaker this morning. This morning, we get to hear from Joe Saxton. Yes. Now, Joe Saxton has been a friend of Mill City for many years, and she's actually now a part of our community, along with her husband, Chris, and daughters, Tia and Zoe. Now, Joe has been preaching and teaching in the UK and US for many years, and she's right now an author, speaker, and leadership coach. So would you join me? Let's welcome Joe Saxton one more time. Hey, everybody. Okay, that was like three people. I'm doing that again. Hi, everyone. There we go. Okay, so... Um, thank you for kind introduction. So, um, I'm a Brit, and a few years ago, my brother got married. This was a great occasion. We weren't sure it was ever going to happen. Um, he lives in Hong Kong, and so we all descended on the, on the UK for the wedding. And because it was a big day, we, everybody had a role, you know? So, Chris was officiating the wedding. My daughters were the bridesmaids. And then I was given the specific task of making sure that everybody on my side of the family behaved themselves and didn't create any drama. Now, you may wonder why that is necessary, or maybe you don't, but uh, um, my family are wonderful, they're amazing, there are a lot of things, but they're also a lot. So, um, there was a wedding a number of years ago where the top table, where the bride and the groom and the parents were meant to be, were kind of swept aside for a group of people who decided to go first, do the speeches and the cake. Um, and, and I remember the bride saying, it really wasn't my day. There was another wedding um, where a, a member of the family who shall remain nameless decided to take the invitation and photocopy it for all their friends. Yeah, so there was about an extra, and I wanted, this is a conservative estimate, 75 people who weren't invited, I know, who showed up on the day. So my role was needed and required to make sure the family behaved themselves. And I'm glad to say the family did. They were wonderful. They behaved. There was only maybe one or two people who I could say I've never seen in my life who were there, which from 75 to 2 is like a revival. You know, it's a real big thing. Um, amazing, amazing. And um, Chris did the wedding great. The kids were gorgeous bridesmaids. My, my bro got married. It was wonderful. The speeches, there weren't even any weirdness in the speeches. We get to the evening event, and there is not, the, the great thing is, it doesn't go south at this point. Um, we get to the evening event, and there is, um, and we do the speeches and stuff, and then the first dance happens. It's wonderful. Chris and the kids, by this point, are jet-lagged out, so I think they go back to the hotel. And then a song comes on, and it's a song our family love, always have moved to. It's Luther Vandross. This may not mean anything to many of you, but he's a legend. Thank you, Donna. I knew you'd be there. Uh, Luther Vandross, Never Too Much. Thank you. And um, phenomenal song. And I noticed in the corner, my family was sat down. Nobody moved. It was that awkward moment in the wedding where no one's doing anything. And I decided this was unacceptable. So I went up to the family, and I remember slamming the table. I said, it's Luther. It's Luther. We need to get up. Now, when I say my family got up, we don't get up as much as we rise. <laughs> and decided to take to the dance floor. Um, my, brother, my eldest brother leads the way, and he came of age of the year of Michael Jackson's Off the Wall album and John Travolta. See, he doesn't walk, he struts. And he struts onto the stage. Well, it wasn't a stage, it was just the dance floor, but for us, it was a stage. He struts on. Me and my sister have this weird thing where we are decided we're supermodels or something, so we're like... 
as we get on the dance floor because it's about to happen. And then there are the elders of the family who are in their 80s. These are women who were immigrant women who moved to the England in the 60s. They've worked hard. They've lived hard. It's been tough. It's been brutal for them. They tell you that every part of their body aches and they can't move much unless Luther is on. <laughs> and then the women in their 80s all start strutting like this. <laughs> and before you know it, they're doing their own version of some cuff it challenge. They are there, they are proud, they are amazing. And I realized at some point, and after a while everybody gets up and dances because we have taken up the entire room. And we've encouraged complete strangers to join us, some who apparently are our family, come to join us. And I remember looking and thinking, no one would believe the story this family has taken. No one would believe what we had to get past to be able to be in the same room. There were years where it would have been a breakthrough to just be in the same building. But that we could dance together, that we could laugh together, we could poke fun at each other, and actually enjoy each other was nothing short of a miracle. Something only God could do. Something only God could shape that we could be in the room and dance together. And it's with that in mind that I think of what we're looking at today. As we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians and the church being a Jesus-centered church, being a unified church, I don't think of it just being silencing or uniformity or saying all the things that make everybody feel comfortable. I wonder if it's a bit more like a, a dance that's costly, sacrificial, where you stay in the room and you keep going. And it's with that perspective we'll hear from our reading today that Nathan is going to read for us. Thank you, Nathan. Thank Nathan, everybody. So unity, it's not a topic I like to talk about much, to be honest. So thanks, Ashish, for that. That's great. Um, and, and it's probably because sometimes it has been described as uniformity, that everybody has to think the same in some way. Sometimes it's been used to silence voices, if we're honest. It's been a way of avoiding accountability for real things, for predators. And so sometimes it's been used to sweep over real significant issues. It's just that that's not how Jesus sees unity. That's not how the early church lived unity. But as I come to this topic, and I'll only share a few thoughts, I'm aware that it's costly. You know, I don't know what it's cost us to be in the room. I don't know what it's cost those of us online to keep chiming in the way that we do. I don't know what your journey of church has been, either in this part of this community or any others. If only we could only bring one story. And so I'm aware that this is raw for some and tender for some, but I invite you to come with me anyway. And as we talk about unity here, we're, I'm not talking about the power differentials where people get abused and that's okay. We're talking about our everyday relationships with others. 
Paul had already spoken about the unity that was possible um, for this church and for this church community. We already see it in chapter 2. He says this, For Christ himself brought brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. But it's one thing talking about it. It's another thing entirely living it, isn't it? It's one thing saying that God has torn down every wall between us. And again, I think we underestimate what it takes to get past this stuff. And I'm struck that as we think of that reading that Nathan brought to us, that Paul begins by begging. Therefore, I, as a prisoner serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling because you've been called by God. That he had to beg them. Again, I think we underestimate how much they had to get past to be worshipping together, to be a community together. You see, the Jews, the Jewish community had been raised to believe certain things about Gentiles. There were Pharisees who'd pray in their prayer life that thanking God that they weren't one of them. There was a culture which understood people who were the other as unclean. There were ideas that, um, that were part of the day where it was seen that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of the gates of hell. That's not a great start, is it? And for the Gentiles who spoke Greek, you know, the word barbarian actually began with the idea of people who didn't speak their language. But it also seemed to communicate something about people who were deemed uncivilized if they weren't like them. And there were other divisions as well in terms of male and female and different socioeconomic groups. They had a lot to get past. So it's no wonder, it's no wonder it begins by begging. And as I looked at African commentators looking at this passage, they spoke a lot about tribalism and ethnocentrism. When I looked at um, UK and US commentators looking at this passage, they spoke a lot about denominations. But all this calling of living a life worthy to that which we've been called. God's people always had a twofold purpose, to know God, but also to reflect and represent him in the world. God in his very nature is relationship. All they had, all that people around could see were how these people treated each other, how they loved or not loved each other, how they related. Was there anything about their relationships that were different from any of the many, many, many other religions at the time? Was there anything about the way they lived their life? That's all they had. They had no headlines. They had no political power. They just had the way they related. And so I wonder, friends, if God were to beg us today about other believers, who would he need to beg you and I about? Who would he urge us to consider, maybe reconsider, Who is God urging you to connect with or perhaps reconnect with? I'll keep going. After begging, he starts unpacking what unity in practice looks like, what it means in detail. And it doesn't get any easier in any way whatsoever. In verse 2, he says this, Paul says this, Always be humble and gentle, be patient with one another, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. I mean, it had me always, really, because that meant consistency. That meant not just kind of one noble, unified act. You mean as a lifestyle, we're meant to do this thing? 
And sometimes when we look at words like humble and gentle, we reduce them to being nice and polite. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of social skills. They're really important. We don't have to be weird, friends. We can just have it together. But that, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But if, if the height of our understanding of unity is holding back on being impolite, we're missing something here because there's far more to it. We're humble when we recognize who we are in the light of who God is and recognize other people in the light of who God is. Do you think you're better than anybody else? Do you think you're better than someone because of the vote you have, because of the degrees you have, because of the life you get to have, because of the home you live in? Do you think you're better than other believers? Do you feel you've got more of a say in some way because of where you're at generationally? You're younger than they are. You're older than they are. Paul's calling for something different. But it's the word gentle I'd love to dig into a little because I think when we look at the word gentle, we kind of think, like, be nice. Be sensitive. I'm from a culture where politeness does all kinds of good. Be nice. But again, that's not what it is. That's not what the word actually means. In the AV, the authorized version, the word we find here is meek. And I remember an old English preacher describing it as horse-broken because in the Greek, the picture is of an animal with all its strength and its vigor and its might being disciplined and trained and surrendered. Bit different from being nice, huh? Bit different from being sweet, although, again, we do believe in social skills. And we see this word, obviously, we're not animals, but when we look at this word, we see it again in Galatians 5, when the fruit of the Spirit, the surrender and the submission and the discipline is in the light of what the Spirit is working in our lives. And Paul is calling these people of, yes, we believe Jesus has torn down these walls of hostility. We live it by always, not just for Christmas or election season, always walking in humility, walking with gentleness to one another. It's not a work of politeness. It's a work of the Spirit of God. I wonder where you need that today. I wonder what the limits of your compassion might be. I was um, confronted with the limits of my... I'm often confronted with the limits of my compassion, to be honest. Why am I even pretending? But um, there was one particular time, um, about 25 years ago, I was speaking at church that I was part of, just finished, and my normal plan was to go and have a bacon sandwich, because why not? And... Um, just as my friend, my friends normally would come and get me, but no one was there. And a guy says, can I come up and talk to you, please? And I thought, not really, because bacon. But um, he was there, and he looked at me, and he said, and I said, yes, of course. What would you like to talk about? And he said, um, I can't remember his name, actually. And he said, I'm 47, I'm a Christian. I'm 47 years old. I've been a Christian all my life, and all my life I've been a racist. And I thought, oh, this is so not going to go well. <laughs> and, he, and he said, he said, I, he goes, I was raised to hate black people. I was raised racist. My parents were racist. I'm like, you need to stop saying racist, bro. Um, he, go, he goes, I was raised to be a racist. And then he, I remember him punching his chest. He goes, but I, I'm the one who's been racist. And then he bowed his head. And, then, and there was this silence, which was probably three seconds, but felt like a lifetime. Because in that same city, that was Sheffield in the north of England at the time, I, it, it, it was the 90s, such a great time for other things. Um, in that, it, that was a city where people would clear their throat and spit at me and say the N-word in public, and others would watch. Where things happened in the context of church as well. And now someone's telling me, <laughs> telling me, 
And, then he, and, and I'm like, and I just remember saying, Lord, and that was, that, there were so many other words related to that phrase, but you know. And then he said to me, um, and I've never seen someone so physically convicted by the Spirit of God before, to be honest. And he said to me, he goes, here's the reality. He goes, um, when you got up to speak, the Lord showed me the hatred in my heart. And I've, I've got to repent. And, I'm, and I've come to confess my sin. He goes, I realize this is sin. It's the first time I'd ever heard in church someone called racism sin. Um, for which I'm, I'm glad for. And then the Lord's like, shake his hand. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't see why I need to shake. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't going to hug him because I'm not a hugger. But he goes, you know. And he goes, so I've come to confess. And by this point, he is bent over, physically bent over. He's not weeping, which actually made it easier for me, to be honest, because it wasn't just an Im- kind of a, I feel awkward, I've got to cry. It wasn't one of those. Um, and I remember thinking, Lord, I can't, I can't, unless you help me. So I, I will join you if you help me. And I reached out and, he, and held his hand and he squeezed it. And he said, thank you. And he didn't, and I, I, I do remember at one point saying, hi, because <laughs> he'd bent down so much by this point. And then he went away. And, and then my friends are like, Bacon, are you ready? And I'm like, now, now, here you are. Um, but I was struck that only, there are some things the spirit of, only the Spirit of God can do. <laughs> I'm not saying that that would be my ideal way of someone working out their racism, to be honest. I'd like you to go and do your work elsewhere. However... However, the f- God was on the move. God was working in his life in a powerful way. And I simply want to ask you, where do you need to exchange niceness? Where in your life, in your relationships with other believers, do you need to exchange niceness for the spirit-filled version of humble and gentle? Where it changes you where you surrender your way, your views, your attitudes for what God would like to do. He goes on to say, be patient with one another, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. The the authorized version describes this as (laughs) long-suffering, which says it all, doesn't it? (laughs) How long are you ready to work towards unity? How long do you want to do this for? A week? Six months? A year? Longer? How long have we got? I'm like, Lord, how about three days? I'm good. I, I, I could be very noble for three days. But the invitation here is long-suffering. It's like treating it not like a sprint, but a marathon, a lifestyle. And then it says making allowances for one another, each other's faults because of your love. Sometimes our offenses are about our expectations not being met. Not always. Not always. There's some real stuff. But sometimes someone didn't remember your birthday or didn't treat you in the way that you hoped you'd be treated. Or maybe they, they, were, they spoke, they were terse with you. Is terse a word we use in, Eng- in America? Thank you. They're not the same language, friends, I promise you. English and American, different. Um, um, <laughs> sometimes that, that someone says something and you expected more from them. Is there room to make allowances? What are the limits we have here? And again, when it says because of your love, it's not the word in the Greek there is not your charity. It's not your brotherly love. It's your sacrificial love, agape. Something about this unity thing is always about sacrifice. It costs. It's a costly dance, this one. It's a costly challenge. 
The more we go on through this passage, we realize why later Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, and in the, in the Greek it's be filled and go on being filled. You need the Spirit to fill you again and again and again to do the work of transformation, to love in a way which is beyond you, to be gentle in a way that's beyond you, to be patient in a way that's beyond you, to be humble in a way that's beyond you. So are you inviting the Spirit to change and transform you for your relationships with other believers? But it's not that we don't have an active role in this either, you know? It's not that we don't have... Um, a role beyond praying. Yes, there is, because we could get to this point and think, I'm, I can't do this, I'm sorry, I just need, I'm just going to go away and pray about it, and, which would be a, a valuable, significant thing to do. But the next verse, um, Paul says this, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. You have to work at it too. You have to be available too. In the NSB, no, NASB, yeah, um, it had be diligent. In the message, it was like, be quick at mending fences. Basically, we've got to form the kinds of habits that will help our relationships, protect our relationships, build our relationships. I wonder what habits we need to form. Back to the church I was part of back in, back in the day in my 20s. Um, it was a church that had about 2,000 people, and 80% of them were between the ages of 18 and 35. Um, it was nuts, really. But... Uh, <laughs> but uh, so it was a lot of life stages, like a lot of people getting married, a lot of people having first kids, taking those steps in their careers, that kind of vibe. That was the thing that was happening. And it became very apparent that we were going to have to make every effort to stay in healthy relationships with each other. We would have to have some ground rules on how we would function. So we would, and again, this was in relationship with peers, um, to have things like, okay, if you've got a problem with someone, when someone makes a mistake, are you going to do Matthew 18 where you talk to that person directly or are you going to talk about to everybody else? Again, it wasn't, it wasn't a power thing at that point. We're just talking our peers here. We had to have ground rules. We had to have other practical ground rules, though. Um, I, I was checking with Ashes about that. Do you use the word dibs to place dibs on something? Yeah? Like, we had to say, you can't put dibs on a guy. <laughs> you can't put dibs on a, oh, I like him, so you can't like him too, kind of thing. And it, it, where I grew up, we used to say bagsy. You say, you can't bagsy a bloke. You can't say, well, I saw him, for, you, because they're involved. They actually have a choice in this. But what would happen is, like, or, or I liked them six months ago, and I know it's a year later, and I know I'm dating someone else, but I'm really upset because you're, like, no. No, don't be weird. Or you can't, bat, you can't put your love life on layaway. You can't decide... That later, oh, well, I was going to choose that name for my child. So you can't. Okay. But you know you've got a whole life ahead of you, don't you? But, think, but, but people would end up having beefs about these sorts of things. I've got that calling, so you can't have that calling. I'm applying for that job. I like that neighborhood and that house. There are lots of houses in that neighborhood. We can all go. It's just a thought. But we had, <laughs> we had to lay some ground rules. You can't bagsy. You can't place dibs on things. And although they were small things, it would, they would catch us up. We'd have to have ground rules on things like, okay, so when, you, when you've broken... Not every relationship went all... I mean, we're adults, you know the deal. Not every relationship ended with marriage. So when there's that moment when you're giving stuff back, don't meet outside the shop where you were looking at rings. It's weird. It's just awkward. Don't do those things. Don't, don't be unaware of each other's needs or vulnerabilities. Make every effort. Now, that was us in the 90s when we did not have the resources that you guys have. 
I wonder what it would be for you, what guidelines you need in your community, for your community, for your group of friends. You see, in the end of the day, unity is a life, and it's a hard one. It's hard work, where you have to get past yourself, where you have to act, it's vulnerable work, because maybe you have to admit that somebody broke your heart, and it's been hard to love anybody since. It's hard work because actually you were both very qualified for that job. And now somebody's walking in, celebrating, and you were like, well, I got to the third round. It's vulnerable because you're seeing other people celebrate things that you were praying for for years. Years. And nothing happened. It's costly because the reasons why you think the way you do and believe the way you do is deeply rooted in your life, and it feels that someone's not taking you seriously. It's why we need the Spirit of God to help us. And so it's no wonder then in the end that Paul brings it up and brings it back round to, for there's one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope. There's your why. There's your why we work at this. There's your why you build relationships. There's your why you persevere. Not only are you connected, you're a body. You're interconnected. But even beyond you, there's a God and there's a spirit and there's a hope he's given you. There's one father. That, it's not just when you pray, you pray my father, you pray our father. And that other person may vote differently from you, think differently from you, live differently from you, and it may cost you to love them. No, Paul doesn't make it sound easy. He still talks of the love required being sacrificial. But this God is moving, still moving, in and through our world, in and through our neighborhoods. The question is whether we collectively reflect it and whether when people look at us, they say they don't make sense. <laughs> they don't make sense on paper. They don't make sense on practice. But there's something about them. There's something about the way they love, the way they live the way they work at things, humble themselves. There's something about those people that points to something more. And so as I close, I simply want to invite us to think about what our next steps might be and what our challenges may be. Like I said for us, there are different... We, it, it would be wonderful if we came at this with a blank slate, but the reality is we don't. There are all kinds of stories. I wonder... For some of us, for some of us, let me just speak to those of us for whom this doesn't apply to in the same way. Some of us, if we're honest, have been distinctly damaged by our church experiences over the years. We've been rejected, we've been othered, we've been marginalized, we've been brutalized. We're not saying here that you go back and talk to that, that's not what this is. Your next step may be healing. And I don't want to underestimate, what, again, what it cost you to even be in the room being a step of your healing journey. If that's your story, if your story is actually, I, I, I am barely, I'm barely showing up here and I'm hanging by a thread in person or online, then my invitation to you is that you invite the Spirit of God to do the next step. And that next step may not be all the way there, but it's a valid step. It's a valid step. Maybe for some of us, our next step is recognizing there are some broken relationships that need to heal that need to be worked on. Maybe there are conversations that need to happen, texts that need to be sent, connections that need to be made. Maybe there's effort we need to make. 
maybe we need to ask the Spirit of God to get us there again, to heal us again. God isn't done with our stories. The wonderful thing is our Redeemer lives. And I don't say that as a platitude. I say that this, what our experiences have been so much that the Lord went to the cross for them. So our, <clears throat> so our beginning point and our ending point is with him. Let's just pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for this wonderful community. And I simply ask that you would show each and every one of us our next step. That we wouldn't feel pressured to do 25 steps when you're simply inviting one. Lord, that you would search us, oh God, and know our hearts. That you would lead us forward. And that we would be, though we're broken, that you would make us whole. In Jesus' name, amen.